If we're lucky, we're living somewhere in the early going of a journey of a thousand years, because that's how long it will take for there to be a world of old growth forests again, because that's how long it takes the mother trees to grow. And that doesn't relieve us of obligations. It doesn't change the fact that there's a huge amount that we need to be doing or not doing here and now. But it asks us to see ourselves as creatures that can be part of the ongoingness of the world, that making scars is not all we're good for, that scars heal over time, that we have been and can yet be again a part of the process by which forests live in the world, that there are things we can do now to contribute to that, and that none of us who are here now will live to see how the story ends as if it were the kind of story that had an ending anyway. Welcome to the Campfire Podcast. I am your host, Matthias Olsen. Today's guest is Dougald Hein. Dougald is one of the founders of the Dark Mountain Project. And if you don't know what that is, that's fine. You'll soon know a bit more about it. Before we get going, I'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Everybody who helped make this show and the films that we create at Campfire Stories possible. If you would like to become a supporter, please visit patreon.com slash Matthias Olson, M-A-T-T-I-A-S-O-L-S-S-O-N. I'll leave a link for that in the show notes. I'd also like to mention that the music in this episode comes from the Swedish family band Kolonien. It is the title track of their brand new album Till Skogen, or To the Forest. I'll link to that in the description as well, along with the link to the documentary series I filmed with the band recently. One final thing before we get to the show. If you happen to be listening to this episode from a podcast app, as opposed to from the Campfire Stories website, and you're curious about where, in fact, you can find all of our films, podcast episodes, and blog posts in the same space, I'll gladly tell you. The URL is campfire-stories.org. But now it's time to jump into my conversation with Dougald. It takes place on a windy, blue sky, sunny day in a small community in Uppland, 
which is about an hour's drive north of Stockholm. The location is the town's old shoe factory, which Dougald and his partner Anna recently purchased to turn into a home and a teaching house. Or a pocket-sized university, as Dougald likes to call it. Enjoy the show. Where are we right now? What is this room? All right, well, we're sat in the old shoe shop in Ustavola. And um, in 2015, it shut its doors finally as a shoe shop after three generations. And in the middle of the pandemic, in late January 2021, we moved in here, me and Anna and Alfie, and we're slowly in the process of making it both our home and a school called home. And I'll get to that in a moment. Yeah. What is a school called home? So you were one of the founders of something called the Dark Mountain Project. Yeah. Yes. Um, could you? Is it possible to briefly explain what it is and to explain how it differs from the transition movement? All right. Or, or maybe how it's similar? I don't know. Yeah. So Dark Mountain started as a conversation between me and Paul Kingsnorth, who we both worked as journalists, we'd both been environmentalists, we were both writers, we'd both reached a point of disillusionment with a lot of what was going on in the worlds that we had been part of. And we found that there was enough in common between where that was coming from. So on the one hand, it felt like, and this was in 2007, 2008, 2009, like the environmental movement was in danger of becoming a church where the priests had lost their faith but didn't think that the congregation were ready for the bad news. So we saw people standing up and giving the same speeches they'd been giving five years earlier, trying to kind of rouse people to one more push around the gates of one more COP meeting and this year, we, this time we can do it. And if you talked to the same speaker quietly over a drink at the end of the night, you would often find that they were in fact pessimistic to the point of despair. And it felt to us as though that gap was dangerous, but also that if we could bring into view, if we could stop hiding our darkness, our fear, our not knowing what to do, it might also turn out to be a threshold, you know, a gateway that we needed to go through to something we didn't know yet. And so we wrote this manifesto, which you know, some people took as uh, a kind of uh, an admission of defeat or an attack on activism. But really what we were saying was, we're feeling like this. We figure we're probably not the only ones and that it's probably not good if none of us talks about how we're feeling. But the other thing we were saying in the manifesto is, we think that the stuff we do as writers, as artists, as poets, as storytellers might be important to how we deal with the mess the world is in, in ways that go beyond just getting asked to help deliver the message about climate change from the scientists to the general public, which is the way artists are usually brought into projects around climate change and stuff like this. And we published the Dark Mountain Manifesto in the summer of 2009. At that point, the transition movement had really begun to gather momentum in the UK. It was quite new still. It was growing fast. 
a lot of people who were involved in transition were drawn to Dark Mountain. A lot of people who were involved in Dark Mountain were also transitioners. So there's been a lot of overlap over time. I would say that, obviously, transition folk talk about the inner transition work anyway. Probably what Dark Mountain did was to hold a space that was more about the intersection between that and art and creativity and the more than human world relationship to earth and to being part of something larger than the stories that modernity and civilization have often been telling about who we are and where change comes from. And also holding a space which people can go to when they hit that point where they no longer believe in things that they used to be confident about, when they don't know what to do next, when they've run out of story. We used to talk quite a bit in the early days about the space between stories and that it wasn't necessarily a new story the world is looking for, that it might involve quietening down and listening, hearing the stories that have been being told all around us for a long, long time that didn't get taken seriously in recent generations and that that failure to listen or loss of the capacity for listening might be part of how we got into the mess we're in. Hmm, thank you. So you and your partner, hmm, Anna, Anna um, have been running these different schools, online programs. Yeah. And um, But now you're building a physical school. Yeah. Could you maybe talk a little bit about teaching and this particular teaching house and what is at the core of what one would be taught if one were yeah. to enter the school? Got it. Hmm. So we often say that home is a school that starts from the conversations that Anna and I bring together around the kitchen table. And also from a sense that the kind of conversations that happen around kitchen tables might matter. There's a phrase from Ivan Illich where he says, I think the limit of political possibility today is the number of people who can sit around a table and share a meal together. And the first time you hear that, it sounds pretty pessimistic, but actually uh, we all need to eat more than once a day, generally speaking. There's nothing that says that you have to be sat around the same table every time. And there's nothing that says that there can't be many different tables around which people can be sharing meals and conversations. And you can begin to imagine through that a kind of change that doesn't look like scaling up or seizing power in the ways that modernity taught us to look for change. Hmm. So we also call home a gathering place and a learning community for those who are drawn to the work of regrowing a living culture. And there's a lot packed into those few words. Mm. To talk about regrowing a living culture is to suggest that there might be something deeply astray with what passes for a culture around here lately, that we might need to 
address our way of living together, our way of being human together, that on the way to modernity, we might have lost some things that you know, all of our ancestors and you know, pretty much all the people who ever lived in other times and places relied on in order to make life work. The ability to come together and do things for reasons other than the logic of the market, which is I'm doing this because I'm being paid to, mm. or the logic of the state, which is I'm doing this because somebody with power has told me I have to, or there's a rule that says I have to. Human communities have held together through our capacity to come together for other reasons, our capacity to create and live inside of stories and structures and patterns of meaning. And that's not a luxury. That's not what you do once you've got all of the foundations in place. That's how the foundations are held together. And we've been able to forget that because we've been cushioned for a handful of generations by the fruits of millions of years of fossil fuel reserves that have been dug out of the ground in these handful of generations. And also you know, the labor of people all over the world caught within these chains of colonialism that were also part of what made industrial society possible. Within that context, we've been able in places like this to live with a disregard for consequences, which is also actually a disregard for meaning that oh, was until quite recently the privilege of mad emperors. We're not going to be able to live with a disregard for consequences for much longer. The consequences that were all along falling on everybody else are now also coming home to the places at the heart of the stories of modernity, the power structures of modernity. And we too are going to have to remember how to make life work under more difficult conditions among the ruins of the world we thought we were living in, among the ruins of the stories that we were brought up taking for granted. Mm. And so where Dark Mountain was a, a space of retreat, a space you go to when you've run out of story, when you need to speak about your fear, your doubt, your darkness, home is still, still has some of that quality of retreat of being back from the front line but it's also where we can begin to talk about and share what we're learning in the work of regrowing a living culture in the places where we find ourselves under these conditions. So that's, that's I guess, the, the short version of what mm. the school is, what we're doing. <laughs> Shall we go have a look at what will become the main hall for the school? Yeah, let's. So here's the, the front door. They built this, um, this place about 10 years after the main house. The Great Hall, as we call it, the shoe store, as it's probably been called for most of its history. And refloor this, make it safe and sound replace the panelling on the end where you can see the light coming through and turn this into our first big workshop space that's already available to do things together with the local community and with people from our scattered community of members of the school. Mm. Pocket-sized Pocket universities, size. was it? 
Yeah, <laughs> pocket-sized school, you know, there's yeah. sort of pocket-sized institutions. Yeah. Something that was really interesting was I was part of a, a project with Kerry Facer, who was the Professor of Climate Leadership at Uppsala for a couple of years and she's Professor of Social and Educational Futures at the University of Bristol. And she brought about 20 of us together for a series of meetings around the university, the future of the university in a time of climate change. And at the first meeting, it was happening online because it was in the middle of the pandemic, we each had to bring something we wanted to have in the university of the future. And so I brought, in inverted commas, um, the kitchen table. That was the object that I described. I said, that's where it all starts for me. And in the group that I was in, there was a woman who was near the end of her career as an anthropologist, having worked in different countries, in different institutions around Europe. And she, the object she'd brought was a smile. Because she said, I saw the smiles disappear from the faces of my colleagues over the last 40 years. And what's the point of what we do if that's no longer there? And we talked about, I asked her, you know, well, what happened? And she told me some of the story. And then she asked me about the kitchen table and I told her our story. And she said, well, that's what the university was when I started out. It was a set of departments which were, you know, not much larger than the number of adults who can sit around a table and share lunch together, very loosely held together into this big institution. And she said part of where the smiles went from the faces of her colleagues was when that stopped being true and the managerial culture began to grip much more tightly onto the activity of the departments until everyone is part of this big institution with thousands of staff and tens of thousands of students. And that gave me some permission to kind of reclaim the story that maybe part of what is called for emerging from the ruins of the universities as we've had them is things as small and humble and, you know, um, lacking in the institutional equipment of academia as an operation like this. Mm. Uh, these are a, a few words put together into a sentence, but it's, it goes deep. Um, so if climate change is a symptom, mm. what would you say it is a symptom of? Right. I think the first thing is whenever, whenever we talk about climate change, we're starting inside the frame of science because climate change is a scientific concept. Science interprets, reads the signs, presents us with ways of thinking about the trouble that climate change stands for. But there are parts of the trouble we're in that science cannot help us with or not on its own. And one of those is a simple question, like how did we find ourselves here? Is it the result of bad luck with the atmospheric chemistry that it turns out six generations later that the fossil fuels on which we built the beginnings of the industrial revolution and the whole world we're now living in were giving off this CO2 that throws the climate system out of balance. And obviously, you know, we didn't know that at the time. So that's one way of answering the question. Another answer is we're in this trouble because of a way of approaching the world, a way of seeing and treating everything, which would always anyway have brought us to such a pass 
even if the atmospheric chemistry had been more forgiving of that particular set of emissions. And I don't think you can talk about what we do about climate change without having answered that question one way or the other. But you can have thought about it and arrived at an answer, or you can just be operating with a default answer that is implicit in the way you're treating the world, the way you're responding, what kind of trouble you think we're in. Mm. And if, if we're in this trouble as a result of a way of approaching the world, then climate change is only a symptom. And we don't have to look very far to see that it's not the only symptom. You know, we only have to go as far as the Stockholm Resilience Centre and the planetary boundaries work to see from within the scientific conversation that climate change is merely one of the more alarming places where we have already crossed thresholds, but far from the only one. Now, I would want to travel further from that and say that this isn't only about human effects on this thing that gets called the environment that this way of approaching the world and way of being in the world is as much a cultural question and the cause of cultural damage as it is an environmental question and a cause of environmental damage. And that actually the, even the idea that you can separate those two is in itself a symptom of this trouble. So, you know, it's, it's a deep hole that you've started to go down once you ask, you know, what is it a symptom of? But I think that we might be able to tell some helpful stories about the strangeness of the way of approaching the world that has been taken for granted around here lately, and about the other ways of approaching the world that remain available, that are still there, you know, in places that have less importance attached to them, whether within our own societies or in places that have been projected as being sort of living in the past or in some way and the margins rather than the centre of the story of, of modernity. Hmm. Thank you. Um, so this is one that I'm thinking about a lot, so it'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on it. What would you say is the role of so-called regular people, people who are removed from political power, uh, in the face of these troubled times? Hmm. Often we're presented with this binary choice between personal action, making lifestyle changes, or political activism, collectively getting together around unifying demands to present them to the people who hold power. And I don't want to say that either of those things are pointless. But I do want to say that there's a whole lot of space in between, that there may be many roles, many different fields of action, and many of them may be you know, larger than the individual or the household, but smaller than the mass movement. We aren't going to prevent some kind of unraveling. I think that was part of the power of transition when it came along, was that it gave people a space to speak about uh, there being unstoppable change involved in how all of this is going to play out. 
and there being work that is needed at the scale of the place where you find yourself, the community within which you're situated, that is not the whole story, but a significant part of what's worth doing in the face of what we know and what we have grounds to fear about the trouble we're in. And the answer to that, to the, the, the definition of what that is, can be very different from person to person. I think taking responsibility for something that has a chance of being around when you're gone and doing what you can to bring it through the bottleneck is a, a general description that can apply to an extraordinary range of different things on different scales. So that's one way of looking for what's worth doing. Finding each other, having conversations, making little pockets of sociability, little spaces in which it is possible to show up with more of yourself than is expected or welcome in most workplaces or schools or institutions or even a lot of families in modern society, practicing being human together, all of that has a quality of building up some of the, the muscles of human culture that are going to be needed to carry each other as things get worse or um, you know, as things unravel further. And you know, some of that stuff can look very tame, but it also can have the quality of um, building up capacity and discovering that we are more than we have been told we are by the society in which we grew up. The power and agency lies in other places than where that society tends to notice. Yeah, they hold. Be the change you want to see in the universe. How do you feel about that? Truism. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, things tend to become cliches because they have an element of truth within them and then they get sort of bleached out and um, softened so that the force of them is no longer heard. Um, it is true that the world is changed as a result of the ways in which we see and experience and make sense of and inhabit the world. Firstly, we notice things that we weren't noticing that were there already. Hmm. Secondly, when our way of seeing the world and the stories we tell about the world changes, we begin to change our habits and the ways we act, and that in turn changes the world. So there is a kind of, there's a process and we can trace in ways that are quite daunting once they begin to come into focus, how far that process has gone in the making of the world that we're in. You know, I would say to wake up to the world as we find it is to wake into grief and a sense of loss because there is so much damage, there's so much loss that's already happened and so much that's already written into the story. And that's not the whole story. There is also you know, a lot more hiding around the edges or persisting in ways that have not been taken seriously. And so it's a, it's a kind of double, a double journey of both stepping into loss, but also stepping into the possibility of what my friend Vanessa Andriotti calls the return of exiled capacities 
There are things we're capable of that got pushed to the edges and written out of the story in modern industrial society that are still there. And we don't have to go looking for them in remote, exotic cultures. You know, there's a, there's a welcome turn towards learning from indigenous thinking mm. and not just the products of indigenous thought that is going on. But sometimes people speak as if there is nothing left here to learn from either. And I think that puts too much of a burden on folks like Vanessa Andreotti and Tyson Junker-Porter and these other amazing indigenous thinkers who are bringing so much to the, the table today. It's like we can't outsource the work of finding what it means to be human together differently mm. to them, but there's certainly a lot of humility needed in learning from the bits that they can show us about where we're coming from. Thank you. Mm. So I, I have a, a difficult... Sometimes people tell me that they watch my films and, and that they feel hopeful. And there's this word hope that seems to be attached to a lot of things that I'm involved in. And I have this double... Like, I feel like if hope is something more like a verb, like mm. comes from something that is taking place, then that's fine. But as a standalone thing, I have hard time with it. What is your relation to this word and, and what it means and or what it what does it mean to you? I want to save the word hope because uh, some pretty wise people have spoken against it in recent times and I understand why. But for me, the kind of hope worth having is the kind that lies on the far side of despair kind that comes after we've let go of our expectations, after we've let go of any sense of entitlement. And it's a stance, it's a way of being in relation to the world, which is still open to surprise, even now, even after all that has happened, rather than thinking that we know the end of the story. So for me, there are kinds of hope that we need to shed. But the experience of no longer hiding from fear and despair, no longer hiding from not knowing what to do, not knowing how it's all going to work out, can be a hopeful experience in a way that I want to make room for. So, there is hope, but it doesn't look like the kind of thing we were taught to expect. If you're still stuck with a grand story of historical progress, if you're still stuck with a set of entitlements that in countries like Sweden or Britain or Canada could be taken for granted for much of the second half of the 20th century, there's no hope. Like, you have to give up on that. But giving up is always giving up on something. And it may feel like giving up on everything at the time. But it's precisely because of that that you have to do it. It's precisely because 
what feels like giving up on everything is actually giving up on something that we have to go through giving up. We have to go through despair in order to land at a place where a hope that's worth having might show up. And when it shows up, it's going to ask things of you. It's going to call you into doing something with the time you've got left, however much that turns out to be. So that's the kind of hope that I see in people's eyes around the kitchen table at our school or around the campfires we used to have at the Dark Mountain festivals. And that to me is, that's still something that's worth working for. Thank you. Uh, when I turn on the radio and hear the troubles of the world, I feel intense grief for which I, on a deep cultural level, lack passageways. I don't know what to do with it. What's your relation to grief and what do you do with it? Hmm. There's a lot of grief around. There's a lot to grieve for. And it is true that we are culturally ill-equipped. You know, as Stephen Jenkinson says, we live in a death-phobic culture. Modernity has been based on trying to treat the world as a set of problems to be solved. And increasingly, the problems it's faced with are the consequences of its solutions. And we're still hiding from the possibility that some of what we're dealing with comes to us as a predicament rather than a problem. A problem has a solution. Predicament is something you can face, you can live with, you can respond to in different ways, but none of those responses is going to make it go away and make everything be like before. So it is true that we're lacking a lot of the cultural tools for the kind of grieving that's called for, but the body still knows how to do it, and the earth still knows how to do it. And if you put those two things together, If you notice that the earth includes the body, and the body is not separate from it. And if you go out and find that patch of wildness that might be, you know, it might be that you can walk out onto the fields five minutes from your home like we can here, or it might be that it's a patch of scrubby bushes in the corner of a school playground or a playing field at the edge of the council estate, But somewhere within walking distance of where you live, there are wild things doing their best to grow and tell you that life really wants to live and it would like you to be part of it. And that that growth comes out of soil. It comes out of earth. It comes out of dirt, you know, humus, humility, humiliation, death. All of that has within it the capacity to be part of how life goes on. And that is all available. And you can just go out and be away from your screen and be away from your phone and be with a patch of ground and things will be passing between it and you in both directions and you may be surprised by how far the work of grieving and being part of the ongoingness of life 
can happen even now, even though no one ever taught you the words for it or the tools for it. Thank you. Um, just final mm. thought, final meditation um, to take us over the edge. Uh, you have a son. Yeah. Is about six. 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 Yeah. yeah. So I have a daughter who's turning ten, mm. and sometimes I think of myself as a grandfather, and and then I think of myself as, or I think of my daughter as maybe a grandmother, and me as being an ancestor. Um, and if we go into that perspective of future, where we're still around, but not like what we have done is around, and, and, and what we haven't done is also around. Mm. Um, do you have any meditation to close this conversation mm -hmm. out about that space from looking back at what did we do what didn't we do and, and and what's the world like for our kids when they're old people sometimes talk as if it's all going to be over soon and i think what they mean is that the world we grew up taking for granted is going away soon But my hunch is that we and our descendants and their descendants are going to be around for a good while to live with the consequences of the ways we've been living around here lately, just as other people have been living with the consequences all along. And we're going to have to find ways to make life work and to make sense of life, because that's what human beings always do. Both of those things, the practical and the meaningful, are tangled up together in what it's like to be these kinds of creatures that we are. And actually what it's like to be part of a world like the one we're in. And there's going to be a lot that even now we are able to take for granted around here that's going away. But it's hard to imagine that collectively we will be further detached from an awareness of the world, a presence within the world, an involvement with the world, than many of us have been and have had to be in order to inhabit the world as it has been around here lately. And those two things don't cancel each other out. You can't put them into a cost-benefit analysis and say, Well, you know, the necessary reconnection with the living world, the necessary recovery of the capacity to make life work and find meaning in life together, rather than outsourcing those things to systems and pipelines and chains of consumption and production. Can't say that they, they will, you know, balance out the loss and the destruction. They won't. That's not how it works. But they will both be part of the story. And it's a story that extends far beyond the horizons of our lifetime. One of the things that came to trouble me over the years as I went around being someone who talks to people about climate change is how often I heard myself and others saying things like, we're the last generation that can make a difference. Mm. And I think that there's two problems with that. One is 
If those words really land with people, it's an impossible weight to put on someone's shoulders. It's just going to be paralyzing. The second is it smuggles back in a kind of arrogance, a kind of hubris, puts us back at the center of the story. It's all about us now, we who happen to be alive in this moment. And so I started looking for another way to inhabit the time of climate change and the time of trouble. And what came to me, like a rumor passed on to me by a writer called Sarah Thomas, and she heard it from Tyson Junkerporter, and you'd have to ask Tyson where he heard it from, maybe he heard it from the land. But it was this. If we're lucky, we're living somewhere in the early going of a journey of a thousand years, because that's how long it will take for there to be a world of old growth forests again because that's how long it takes the mother trees to grow. And that doesn't relieve us of obligations. It doesn't change the fact that there's a huge amount that we need to be doing or not doing here and now. But it asks us to see ourselves as creatures that can be part of the ongoingness of the world, that making scars is not all we're good for, that scars heal over time, that we have been and can yet be again a part of the process by which forests live in the world, that there are things we can do now to contribute to that, and that none of us who are here now will live to see how the story ends as if it were the kind of story that had an ending anyway.
That was the track Till Skogen by Kolonien. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. I'd love to mention a few of you by name, if I may. Suki Cannon, Jen Ju, September Larsson, Magnus Nodelik, Camelia Freiberg, Alice Hall, and Nicole Alger. With all of my heart, thank you. And thanks to all the other Patreon supporters who helped make this vessel move forward. Would you like to join them? You'll find all the details at patreon.com forward slash Matthias Olsen. With love and until the next time.